0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Let's begin our program tonight in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all sin, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Andy, can you please introduce our our wonderful teacher this evening? Of course. Our speaker this evening is Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture at Mount St. Mary Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. After a Catholic upbringing, Dr. Stephen Smith spent some years in evangelical megachurches and earned his M.A. at Whedon College Graduate School in Evangelical University. Returning to the Catholic Church in 2000, Dr. Smith earned a Ph.D. from Loyola University of Chicago, specializing in New Testament and early Christianity. Dr. Smith frequently speaks in parishes, seminaries, and universities, and has appeared on EWTN and Catholic Radio. He is the author of numerous essays and two books, his most recent being The House of the Lord, a biblical theology of the temple in the Old and New Testament. Dr. Smith and his wife have two children and live in rural Maryland. Uh, We're delighted to welcome him back to the Institute. I just want to say, sort of off the cuff, personally, um, Dr. Stephen Smith is just a wonderful friend of the Institute. Whenever I talk to him behind the scenes, I can assure you his heart is really in this mission and he's always asking about all these little details, asking how the fundraising tribe's going, things that are not required for him to ask and he only asks because he really does care about us. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Stephen Smith.
2: Thank you, Father Hezekiah, and thank you, Andy. All right, let's dive in, everybody. Uh, This topic is near and dear to my heart. I want to begin, though, with uh, by asking you to open up your bibles this as always is going to be a tour de force through our holy scriptures so i hope that you have with you tonight and i know father hezekiah insists upon this but i want to double down and say you need a bible tonight we're going to be going through a lot of scriptures both old and new testament so if you have one of those new testaments yeah not so much we need one of those old and new and a catholic bible i've got some uh, deuterocanonical scriptures lined up for you that are going to blow you away So this talk tonight is called Emmanuel and the Temple of God. And of course, you know that Emmanuel in Hebrew means God is with us, right? And that's who Jesus Christ is. So this is a wonderfully exciting topic this time of year as we approach uh, Christmas. And so let's begin with a scripture where Jesus himself is talking about this mystery of the temple. Matthew chapter 12 beginning in verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck grains, the heads of grain, and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are guiltless. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. My dear friends, uh, when we come to that statement, we have to ask a very obvious question, and that is, what could possibly be greater than the temple that Jesus is talking about? Think about it. The temple contained, right, the Shekinah, the glory of God, over the uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. That is to say, the very presence of the Father. So, how could there be something that's greater than that? Well, the only thing greater than the temple is God Himself. So Jesus is making another divine pronouncement that he himself is the son of God. But there's much, much more to our topic tonight. And so let's, let's dive in. So as I was saying, this theme of the temple is uh, very near and dear to my heart. For a number of years, I've been working on uh, just this whole biblical question of what is the temple and why is it significant? Why was it significant back in the days of Jesus? Why was it significant back in the days of of ancient Judaism and why is it significant to us today? So I was asking these questions for a number of years through my teaching and through many presentations and with God's help I have discovered a number of exciting truths and some clear patterns and in 2017, I released the fruit of that research and prayer in a book called The House of the Lord and I'll give you the subtitle uh, later. My aim in all of this tonight is to try to help you understand the mystery of the temple, not just as it pertains to scripture, but as it pertains to your life. And in the very center of it is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, the Word made flesh. Tonight, one of the goals I have for you is to answer a number of questions. What is this temple and why is it so significant? And who was Jesus? And what was his relationship like with the temple? Was it positive? Was it negative? From where, or maybe we should say from whom, did Jesus derive his own perspective of the temple? And then what can we learn by studying any patterns in the scriptures as it relates to Jesus and the temple? So, our focus tonight in tonight's webinar is decidedly on Jesus and his identity as Emmanuel, God with us. And we're going to try to understand that better by looking at a number of texts, mostly in the Old Testament, but also in the New. And so, what I'd like to do tonight is to divide our time up into uh, two parts. In the first part, which we'll cover mostly before the break, uh, we're going to look at some temple theology in the Old Testament. Our goal there is to lay a good foundation and understand something about the Jewish roots of worship. And the big question is, how far back does this temple idea go? Right, because we can find out where the origins of it are, then we can, we can trace it forward and understand how it evolved and all that. In the second part, which will come in probably after the break, we're gonna build on that Old Testament foundation and taking what we learned there and apply it to the New Testament and look at a few key passages in the Gospels and in the New Testament to help us clarify this relationship between Jesus and the temple. So let's dive in with part one. Where does this idea of the temple first emerge in scripture? It's really interesting, after writing this book, I've been out all over the place talking to people, and I've asked that question. So where do you think the idea of the temple begins in the story of salvation history? And I get a lot of different answers, which is interesting. So maybe can I kind of ask yourself where do, where do you what would you place yourself in in regard to an answer where does the idea of the temple begin in scripture so many might say well in the book of first part be first kings well first kings chapters 1 through 10 we have the story of Solomon David's son and among other things he narrates the story of his building and dedicating of the temple of Solomon so that seems like a reasonable place. And for many of us in our head, we had this idea uh, of Solomon's temple. And that's not a bad answer, but it's certainly not the beginning of the idea in salvation history. You have to go back further. So some might say, well, if you go back not just to Solomon, but to David, now you're at the real roots and origins of the temple, because God made these covenantal promises to David, right, of a dynasty, right? And an everlasting covenant. And part of that is that David's own son would build a house for the Lord. So we can say, well, 1 Kings 10, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I should say. Now we're getting, we're moving back further and further, right? Others might say, well, no, you've got to go back further than that. It's not just Solomon or David. You've got to go back to that sort of uh, portable temple, before we get to Solomon's temple, what's known as the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Well, where do we find that? Well, it's scattered throughout the Pentateuch, but in books like Numbers, especially in Deuteronomy, it's also kind of there in the background, excuse me, in the story of of the book of Joshua and Judges. So now we've moved it back further from uh, 1 Kings and 2 Samuel to the book of Numbers. But astute biblical students, might well add that we have to go back further still, not just to the tabernacle in the wilderness in the book of Numbers, but to the instructions for it, which are also really instructions for the later temple. They're sort of, uh, we'll talk about this, but the the tabernacle is sort of like the earlier version, the temple on wheels. We get a more extravagant version in the later temples that are built. So you'd say, well, where are those instructions found for the tabernacle and temple? Well, they're found in the book of Exodus. Exodus. Um, so uh, turn with me back to Exodus 25, and in some ways I think you will see that we're pretty close now to the bedrock of the temple, the idea of the temple in sacred scripture. And in Exodus 25, really through 40, we we have the instructions in very minute detail, by the way, for the construction of the tabernacle that Moses and his brother Aaron, who of course becomes the first high priest of that temple. Uh, are to build the instructions from God. So but let's look at one verse in Exodus 25 at the very beginning of that, that segment there. Verse nine says this, according to all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture you shall make. So yes, here we're back pretty close to the bedrock of the idea of the origins of the temple, right? It's not in the actual construction of it by Solomon or even the promise of it to David, or even in the actual movement of that, you know, portable temple on wheels in the book of Numbers. It's all the way back in the origins of uh, the instructions that God gives to uh, Moses in Aaron in Exodus 25. And what's interesting about that passage we just read is I'd like you to circle that word pattern, right, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And I want to teach you a, a Hebrew word. It's Tavnit. Say that with me. Tavnit. It would be spelled T-A-V-N-I-T. Tavnit. And that's the Hebrew word for pattern. Okay. And so what God is talking about is a heavenly pattern, right, that is being given to Moses and Aaron. So really what they're receiving, you might say, is a kind of blueprint, right? If you're going to build uh, any sort of a building, you need a blueprint to start with to make sure that what's actually being constructed is, is according to the original pattern or model. But the model here in question is the heavenly temple or the heavenly tabernacle. In other words, what we're, we're seeing here in Exodus is that the very notion of the temple is, you might say, in God's divine liturgy and God's divine mind in heaven from eternity. So it's an eternal idea. It didn't begin when Solomon, uh, you know, begun the building project in the year 930 BC. And so here, as I said, we're very, very close to the the origins of it. This idea that the temple is, the physical or concrete temple, is really a replica or an icon, right, of the heavenly tabernacle. And let's look at another scripture while we're at it here, and that is in the Book of Wisdom. I promised you a moment ago we're going to look at some, a number of scriptures, including um, from some of the Deuterocanonical books. And if you're here and you're not a Catholic, um, these are books that belong to the Catholic canon of the Old Testament. And I encourage you to read them, even if you don't consider them as inspired. Catholics do consider them just as inspired as the Book of Genesis or the Gospel of Mark. Um, but even if you don't consider them as inspired, if you're a non-Catholic, say, Protestant, I urge you to read them because you're going to learn a lot about ancient Judaism. So let's look at the book, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 9. And here, presented to us in the voice of Solomon, although it's likely written much later. Again, this book is written about the first century BC, so about 100 years before Christ, right? long after the time of Solomon. But the book is describing the following in the voice of Solomon. And it says, Thou hast given command to build a temple on thy holy mountain and an altar in the city of thy habitation, a copy of the holy tent which thou didst prepare from the beginning. Now, the book Wisdom of Solomon is written in Greek, not in Hebrew. So we don't have the word tavnit there because it's not written in the language of Hebrew. But we do have a very interesting word and I'd like you to circle this one, the word copy. And this is a very interesting Greek word to accompany the word tavnit in in Hebrew for the heavenly pattern. And this word is mimema, M-I-M-E-M-A, mimema. And it's where we get our word mime it's also ultimately where we get our word, we don't really use this anymore, we say copy, like carbon copy or xeric copy, but mimeograph, mimeema. And it's the idea, again, of a copy, something that, is, uh, that comes forth from a more pristine or perfect image. So both in the book of Exodus, with regard to the tabernacle of the wilderness, and then later in the book of Wisdom, Wisdom of Solomon, the idea that the Temple of Solomon is also a kind of replica or icon or image of the heavenly tabernacle. And so now already, before we've even gotten, you know, into shallow waters here, let alone out into the deep, we've learned something extraordinarily important tonight. And it's this, that the origins of Jewish worship are not in any earthly manifestations of worship. As important as those are, whether it's the Tabernacle or the Temple of Solomon or the later Temple of Herod, the origins are heavenly and eternal. Let me say that again, this is a very important point. The origins of Jewish worship, as it pertains to the temple itself, are not in those earthly manifestations or objects or buildings as important and as holy as they are, the origins are further back. They are eternal and they are heavenly. This Tavnit, this pattern, right, is the eternal sanctuary in God's own heavenly abode. It is the pure, spotless, and incorruptible temple of all of eternity. It is not subject to death or decay, to incorruptibility, to neglect, to sin, or, or destruction by a foreign um, adversary or anything else. And so here is our first big moment tonight. The temple in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, are incarnations, sacramental signs of the heavenly temple. And as I said, that's a very key insight. And will eventually lead us forward when we look at in part two at the Gospel of John. And it will help us to have a greater understanding of what St. John tells us in his prologue when he says, the word became flesh and tabernacled or templed among us. The word became flesh, and the word that is often translated dwelt, uh, is really the more precise word is tabernacled. Word became flesh and tabernacled or templed among us. And so we understand then that Jesus, the Son of God, is the Word made flesh who temples among us. He himself is, right, the eternal Son of God and the eternal temple, after which all of those physical temples are in fact patterned. Now, let me go back to my earlier question. That is right. I said when I go out and give talks on this, I ask people how early is the idea of the, te- of the temple in scripture? How far back does it go? And so far, we're back in the book of Exodus, right? Um, that's not the beginning of it in Exodus 25. It's close to the idea, though, because in Exodus 25 is this idea we've just been talking about the Tavnit, right? This idea that the temples in Judaism are, are copies of the heavenly blueprint, of the heavenly original, right? No, the idea is not first in Kings or 2 Samuel or the book of Numbers or even in Exodus. It's in the very first utterance of God in sacred scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I want to spend a significant amount of time uh, in part one here talking with you about where the very first origins of the temple lie in Scripture, that is in Genesis 1 and 2. So let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Here now is the big idea as it pertains to the temple in the Old Testament. When we look for the origins of the temple in Jewish worship, we need to go back to the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2, and in some sense, uh, Genesis 3. And there are numerous clues and I can only show you a few of these tonight, but I think you'll appreciate and get a lot out of the ones we are going to look at. Although I want to be clear, these are only a few. There's many more. Um, but there are numerous clues that suggest overwhelmingly that Genesis 1 and 2 depict the whole of creation, that is to say the heavens and the earth, as God's divine sanctuary. And that Eden, what we call the Garden of Eden, is the holy place Of this cosmic temple okay Uh, so here is in Jesus's day a basic image of the temple now the temple proper would be this area back over here in the dark green if you can see this right and I'm kind of highlighting this with my mouse cursor so hope you can see that now this would be the actual edifice or structure okay let's set that aside for the moment let's go back out here okay To this larger green line. In the days of Jesus, okay, there was a sacred enclosure or a large wall that separated what was known as the outermost courts of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, right, from the places where God's chosen people, the Israelites, could enter. And the entranceway is out here, right, in over here on the right side of the screen. So you move from, you might say, less holiness towards more holiness. The first thing you would enter is what's known as the court of women. That doesn't mean that only women are allowed there. That's a a mistaken notion. Uh, Rather, it's that this is the place that women and men of Israel can worship. Now, there's no Gentiles in here. That was strictly forbidden, and there were signs in all the languages of the day that there would be a death penalty if a Gentile transgressed and went in here. Now, whether or not that actually happened, who knows, but it certainly tells us a lot of the importance of the boundaries here. And there's various dimensions of this um, uh, court of the women. Uh, some suggest it's possible that Jesus overturned the, the, the tables of the temple here. I think it's actually in another place, um, actually out here, called Solomon's Porch. Um, the court of the lepers is in here. There's a lot of other things, but let's move on and move further up and further in. There's a gate here, and once we go past this gate, only priests are allowed into this area. It's called the Court of the Priests. And that great altar, where we hear about all the sacrifices going on uh, day after day, morning and evening, right, and at the special high feasts, is right out here, also out in the open air of priests. Now, interestingly, there was a kind of a vestibule here where men could go in and observe. If they weren't priests, they couldn't actually participate in any of the liturgical activities, but they could sort of observe and be, you might say, sort of like ambassadors for their family to watch the various sacrifices. And it's like, oh, hey, here's the Thompson sacrifice is now coming up to the altar. That's my family's, right? Um, okay, so we have the, the, the altar out here. But then as we move further in, we have the, as I said, the actual building, right, which stood fairly high. In Jesus's day, it's, it's, it's a very high structure, multiple stories. But the two main elements within it, although there's many things within inside here, Two main elements are the holy place, right, and the most holy place, or holy of holies. Now, most of us know what this is, right? The holy of holies contained the ark of the covenant, and this is where the high priest alone could go in on the day of atonement, um, what, we, what uh, is called Yom Kippur, or the day of atonement, and offer sacrifices for his own sins and also for the sins of all of this. Israel. He would take a, uh, one of the, the blood of the goat that was sacrificed on this altar and then bring it in and sprinkle it over the what's called the mercy seat, which was a kind of a, a large gold covering that covered over the actual Ark of the Covenant that contained the Ten Commandments. Uh, the high priest actually had, a, um, according to uh, tradition, Jewish and Christian tradition, a, uh, a golden rope tied around his ankle. And that was in case God did not accept that holy sacrifice, and decided to, as the biblical phrase goes, smote him, they could pull him out because no one could enter in here, right? Uh, and then out here in the holy place uh, is an area I think that a lot of people don't really understand. I've talked to a lot of people and they, they kind of think the holy place is the holy of holies, and you no, know, that's not at in, in all the case. The holy of holies uh, is only for the high priest. That's only for the high priest. But the holy place is where other priests could go and attend to temple business. So we'll talk more about this, but there was the menorah, which was kind of an icon of the Tree of Life from Eden. And then there were uh, 12 tables where on each one was a loaf of the bread of the presence, which the priests would eat um, as part of their offering. So uh, that's just a a sort of a basic visual I want you to keep in mind as we continue on here, talking about um, uh, now Genesis and this idea of the temple in Genesis. But the main thing, aside from all of the particular here that I want you to see, is that we have increasing levels of holiness, right? From the outer courts, the court of the Gentiles, which is really, you know, they're sort of the unholy, unwashed, right, the, the Gentiles, right? So they're not even really in the temple proper. And then we have Israel in here. And as we move further in, we ultimately have just the priests. And then ultimately in the Holy of Holies itself, just the high priest. And that is indeed where God's, Holy presence ever dwells. Okay. All right. So let's come back together here. So I have some more visuals to show you, but I wanted to put that up because as we move into Genesis now, what I want to show you is that there is a kind of a temple uh, pattern that begins already back in the book of Genesis. Okay. So let's look, consider some of the evidence. Uh, The first piece of evidence is an ancient name for God. And what we're talking about here is evidence that indeed suggests that Genesis 1 and 2 depicts all of creation in that temple manner as I just described, with its threefold movement from holy of holies to holy place to all of the outer courts, including the outermost courts of the Gentiles, right? So keep that threefold pattern in mind, holy of holies, holy place, and then the outermost courts. What's the evidence for this? That sounds like a cool idea, Dr. Smith, but where's the biblical evidence? Well, let me muster some forward for you. The first is, in fact, an ancient name for God. In fact, I would argue it's probably one of the most ancient names for God, and I think it's one of the most exciting clues that suggests that Genesis 1 and 2 is, in fact, depicting all of creation as God's temple. The the term is Almighty God. But it's the Hebrew term, and that term is El Shaddai. You may be familiar with that, if you know that Amy Grant song, I think other artists have recorded it, El Shaddai. And it's translated most often Almighty God. So if you have like Bible software and you look up El Shaddai and you look for the translation in the Old Testament, you'll see it many, 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 many times throughout many of the books. And it's typically translated Almighty God but that's not quite the precise translation of El Shaddai. A more precise translation of the Hebrew phrase El Shaddai would be El, God of the mountain. And this is, in fact, a very important clue on our way to seeing Genesis 1 and 2 in this temple context. Why? Well, first, El Shaddai is a term that God uses in some very key instances throughout the story of salvation history. For example, when he covenants with various people. So it's not it's not just an incidental term. It's a term of theological significance. And so what we have is the God of the mountain, El Shaddai, uh, is covenanting with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and later all of Israel. And we see it again in some key places. Let me give you some actual textual evidence. In Genesis 17:1. and we see there, then one of the covenantal scenes between God and Abraham, which goes really from Genesis 12 all the way to 22 or so. But in Genesis 17:1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you. Okay. Another one is in um, Jacob at Bethel in Genesis 35. Or, um, even outside of the Pentateuch, El Shaddai rushes towards the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, For example, uh, take a look at Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 24, we read, And when they went, the angels... Uh, Ezekiel talking. I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of rushing waters, like the thunder of El Shaddai. Um, and I could go on and on with many other examples. But the first point I want to just lay down here is that El Shaddai, or El God of the Mountain, is a very ancient Jewish term, and it's one of deep theological significance. When God comes forward and makes Himself known to various individuals and ultimately to all of Israel in a covenantal or pledging fashion. Another part of the interest here in the term El Shaddai is that the term means God of the Mountain. Now, why is that interesting as it relates to the temple? Well, um, in Genesis chapter two, verse ten, we're, we get a description of Eden, and what's interesting about this description is we have we're told of the four rivers in Genesis two ten. We read, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And then we get the names of them, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates, right? Okay, well, what does that mean? What does that have to do with this god of the mountain? Well, the idea or the picture, it seems, in Genesis chapter 2 of Eden is that you have this one river, and then it splits into four, and in, in a certain sense, waters the four corners of the earth. And both Jewish and Christian commentators have noted that the way in which the the geography is being portrayed here is suggestive of a mountain, so that Eden is a mountain. Now, maybe, just maybe, you're a bit skeptical and say, well, that, that sounds kind of interesting, but, you know, I'd like something a bit more concrete. Okay, I've got something more concrete for you. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28, 13 and 14. It says, you were in Eden the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, carnelian, topaz, jasper, all these other precious gems. On that day you were created and they were prepared with an anointed guardian cherub or angel I placed you. Now watch this carefully. You were on the holy mountain in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So, In Ezekiel, we have this very interesting passage that's really commenting on the scene in Genesis chapter 2, and it gives us additional biblical nuance into how the Jewish prophet understands Eden, not just as a flat, you know, farmland, like in the middle of Iowa or Illinois or something, but in fact a holy mountain. Again, I suggest it's implicit very much in Genesis 1 and 2, but it's vividly implicit Explicit in Ex in Ezekiel chapter 28. Okay, so you say, I'll buy that. So the scripture reveals that Eden is the mountain, and the scriptures seem to prefer this term for God, God Almighty, which actually means God of the mountain. Ooh, something's coming together here, right? But what's the connection? The God of the mountain, Eden's a mountain. So what? What does the mountain have to do with a temple? Well, actually, quite a bit. When we study ancient cultures, and here I mean both in and out of scripture so both in Judaism and in other cultures, in Mesopotamia, in Babylon, in Egypt, and in other cultures still, mountains were more than just places way up high. They were high places, and that's a pun, uh, a bad one, but that's a little bit of my biblical humor here. They were known as high places, uh, meaning places that were holy. And in fact, if you look through the Old Testament, you will find that phrase, high places, and it's, used as a derogatory term about altars that were built in the land of Israel that should have never been there. In fact, Solomon uh, allows some to be built because he made these, you know, these marriage relationships with with women from other nations, like he married, you know, the daughters of the Pharaoh of Egypt, and they would build high places, which are literally uh, an altar of stones, typically on high places, on mountains, so a high place on a high place, right? Um, But outside of the Bible as well, all over the ancient world, high places and altars were constructed most often on mountains, suggesting widely and deeply that for many, many ancient minds and hearts, mountains were the places where you go to commune with God. They were not just higher places, they were places where the veil between heaven and earth was more thin where one worshiped God, where one received special revelation, and above all, where one offered sacrifices. So now let's just back up. We've got quite a bit of evidence actually coming together, right? We've got God Almighty, a term we all know, but it, in fact, we've learned something about its truer meaning, that it really means the God of the mountain. We have learned from Ezekiel um, that the Old Testament looks at Eden not just as a piece of farmland, but in fact as a mountain. And anecdotal evidence from outside of the Bible, as well as evidence in the Bible, all suggest that mountains are really perceived by the ancients of all sorts as very special sanctuaries, almost like natural sanctuaries. Um, another one is, in, is, in, uh, is uh, in the land of Abraham, in the ziggurat, which is a kind of a, this idea of a holy mountain where one goes to commune with God, the so-called ziggurat at Ur. You can look that up online. And it kind of looks like a pyramid, but it's really, a, it's really more of a temple. Okay, so let's suppose Eden is a mountain. Are there any other mountains in scripture in the Old Testament where special things happen with El Shaddai? Well, in fact, there are. Let me name five Mount Ararat, Mount Moriah, uh, Mount Sinai, and Mount Zion. Well, that's four more, right? And then we have Eden, Mount Eden. So we have Mount Eden, we have Mount Ararat, Mount Moriah, Mount Sinai, and Mount Zion. Sorry, Dr. Smith, where, what, what's the significance of those five mountain ranges or mountaintops? Well, each one of them is associated with a covenantal figure where another dimension of salvation history moves forward. Right? Let's look at them again. Mount Ararat is described to us in Genesis 8 and 9. And that is where God covenants with Moses. And Moses builds an altar right after the flood. Builds an altar. First time the term is used in Scripture on the mountain. Uh, Moses binds and sacrifices Isaac, although he doesn't really sacrifice, but he gives him over to God, right, in Genesis 22. And that happens on Mount Moriah. Moses goes up the mountain of Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments. And so now we have the Mosaic Covenant, which takes place, again, on the mountain. By the way, Moses also offers sacrifices. Uh, He goes up the mountain and says he eats and drinks Right, with Aaron and his two priestly sons, Um, and they behold God, it says in Exodus 24, verse 9. And then finally, David, right? Uh, David, uh, where his son really constructs the temple uh, on Mount Zion, right? Where there are the sacrifices, some of which were also consumed or eaten. So we have Mount Eden, Mount Ararat, Mount Moriah, Mount Sinai, and Mount Zion, five of the holy mountains in the Old Testament, where El Shaddai encounters and enters into covenant with his people. And all of that leans forward to the New Testament, where the one final covenantal mountain brings all of these strands together, all five strands and more. And of course, I'm talking about Golgotha, where the new covenant is ratified. Now, the evidence that we talked about from El Shaddai, I think is amazing and pretty cool. But it's by no means the only evidence. And I'd like to squeeze this in before the break here and get to a couple other pieces of very important evidence as it pertains to Genesis. So we're still going to talk about Genesis, but what are evidence is there? Well, I want to mention two. And both of these points have a, a little title. So the first point I want to mention is uh, Up From the Waters – and then after I talk about that one, I want to talk about um, gate liturgies. Now, what are these two phrases, up from the waters and gate liturgies? Well, there are two points that I want to make to further corroborate the evidence that Genesis 1 and 2 depicts all of creation as a temple, along with El Shaddai. Right? I want to make sure we got really see this clearly. So what do I mean by up from the waters? Well, in the ancient world, we have this pattern of man being delivered or rescued from the waters. Water in the ancient world was, of course, life-giving, but also life-taking, right? It could be very, very hostile. And so in the ancient world, you have sort of this idea of the mountain of God. That's the place where one goes to commune with God or the gods. And then above that is the realm of the gods or in Judaism of God himself, right? But then below the mountain are the waters of chaos, right? Uh, these are the hostile waters. So like in the Greek world, we the, the waters below... The mountain are the threat of the abyss, right in Judaism you might think of uh, death or Shaol right and in the House of the Lord, I lay out some very interesting discussion of this kind of ancient Jewish cosmology, and I want to throw up a little uh, graphic here to show you, which I hope will um, which I hope will make this point that i'm that I'm getting at here. so let me bring this up for you here, and let's take a look at this okay. So this is a kind of a depiction of ancient uh, Hebrew cosmology. Without getting into all the nitty-gritty, here's basically the threefold movement that I'm talking about. We have the heavens above, right? The skies above, right? And then we have the earth. But in this graphic, if I would change one thing, I would make this more of a mountain, right? You can see the earth protruding here with various mountains. But in the very center, it would be sort of like the highest mountain. And that would sort of be these these temple mountains in scripture, like Mount Eden, right? And Mount Sinai, right? And then if you flip that triangle the mountain upside down, right? Just flip it upside down, right? What do you get? You get sort of a diamond. So that down below, the mirror image of the place where one communes with God then becomes the furthest place away from God. And that's Sheol. You see that in Job. You see that in the Psalms where it says, if I go up to heaven, thou art with me. If I go down to Sheol, thou art there. And that's sort of this idea of of this furthest place away from God so that the waters below the mountain sort of represent the antitheses of the place where one goes to commune with God. So it's sort sort of like a triangle, if that makes sense. So keep that in mind. Okay, so what is this business of being rescued from the waters? Well, in Scripture... And in the ancient world, the idea is that these waters of chaos threaten humanity. It's sort of like the power of nature or the power of the gods, if you will, in, in Hellenism, right? And the idea is that dry land that rises up to the very high place represents not just physical security, but also transcendent security, because that's where one is not just safe from physical harm, but where one goes to receive spiritual consolation and communion with God, right? Okay. So think of it in scripture. We have. Moses delivering the Israelites through the waters of the Red Sea. We have Joshua taking the Israelites through the waters of the Jordan over to the dry land and ultimately ultimately up to Mount Zion, right, under David. Think of Jesus being baptized in that same Jordan River in the New Testament, going down into the waters, plunging down, and then rising back up. Or we can think of Uh, St. Paul describing Christian baptism in Romans 6, right? If we died with Christ, we also rise with him. So this motif is all over the scriptures. Think of Peter falling in the waves, coming to Jesus, and then fearing, seeing the waters. He goes down, and then Jesus grabs his hand and raises him back up. So this is kind of the idea, okay? And what I would suggest is that the motif in Genesis is a kind of deliverance through the waters, of course, God creates ex nihilo, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens, and earth. He's not creating out of any primordial waters. That's that's not what I'm saying here, right? But in another sense, in a literary sense, it, it's sort of like that God delivers me in from the waters. He places them in the garden, which we know from what we've learned so far is a holy mountain. And so um, what we have is that Now we're looking at a mountain sanctuary in which God places the man and the woman. And this basically then corresponds back to this other image of the temple, right? So that what we have is if this is Eden, right? We have the most holy place is the place above the mountain, right? That's where God alone dwells. Eden is the place on the mountain where Adam and Eve dwell. They're very, very close to God, right, in this special sanctified place. And then what's outside of Eden? Well, that's sort of the outer courts, right? And in the world of Eden, the outer courts represents the place of chaos, right? God made it so it's good, but at the same time, it needs to be sanctified. It's further away from God. And part of Adam's role, we're going to get into Adam being the high priest, right? Part of Adam's role, and Eve's role too, is to take the holiness of the holy place of Eden and bring sanctity to the rest of creation. In other words, to take the holiness that they received out of the gift of life, being delivered, being created by God, brought to this place of special holiness called Eden, right on the mountain of God, that they would ultimately have the mission of going forth and bringing the sanctity that they bear in their own image, after all, they're made in the image and likeness of God, bringing that out to all of creation and then sanctifying or completing the creation with God's grace and God's help over time. The only problem is that doesn't happen, right? Because as we know, the story gets interrupted by the serpent in Genesis 3. So does our temple theology go out the window? Not at all. In fact, what happens in Genesis is going to kind of replicate again and again and again throughout the Old Testament and all the way into the New. Um, let's talk about the serpent, right? What's the serpent? Well, the Hebrew term is Nahash for serpent, and it's translated as serpent or snake. But elsewhere in, uh, in Scripture, for example, in Isaiah 27, verse 1, Isaiah 27, 1, the term Nahash Is actually translated as Leviathan, or we might translate that elsewhere as like a sea snake or a sea serpent, right? And so there, the plot thickens, right? We've got this idea of almost like this serpent from the primordial waters, right? From which Adam and Eve were drawn up onto the mountain of God, redeemed, placed in this holy sanctuary away from the chaos, right? And then outside the garden, there is, um, again, the world is good, but it's needing to be purified tamed ordered sanctified made holy right and it's not yet and how do we know it's not yet holy well go back to genesis 128 and in genesis 128 we're told that god blessed them and said be fruitful and multiply except we stopped too early right there let's finish the verse right we do this all the time god blessed them and said be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it And what's fascinating about that first command in scripture, I think, is it goes right into temple theology. Here's how, right? Be fruitful and multiply is indeed the call to create life. No doubt about it. It's a gift of fertility. And fertility is always a gift in scripture. No question about that. At the same time, if we leave off that, if we bring in that second verse, part of the verse that's often left, left out, we learn it's also a call to subdue or to order the the earth, to sanctify it, in other words. That's what Adam was already doing in Genesis 2 when God says basically go and name all the animals, right? It's not just like this is a cow, that's a hippopotamus. It has to do with, with being a co-creator with God and bringing order and gift to all of creation. So as Adam names something, it now receives its identity from God through Adam, the high priest and king. So there's a sense in which when God when God gives Adam this call to name the animals, he is sanctifying the garden. And that same duty is then to take place outside the garden. So in a sense, you might say Eden is, I don't know if I really like this term, it's kind of like it's the laboratory where they learn the art of holiness and then they go and do it out in the rest of the world. But again, the problem is they never go and do it because the unholy comes from outside the garden in, the Nahash, the sea serpent, right? And that tells us something about Adam and Eve's own fragility, their own humanity, right? That Adam is called to really keep this place sacred and holy. And in fact, then go from that mission out and beyond, but he never gets there because the unholy one gets in. That takes me to my second and final point uh, before the break. And that is this idea of gate liturgies. What's this? The idea of a gate liturgy is that in the ancient world, temples were a big deal, and one just didn't waltz into a temple, right? It was a very big deal to move into a temple and to go from one place into another. I already remarked about how in the Temple of Herod, you know, there was a sign that if you're a Gentile, you could not trespass inside to the actual temple proper, right? And you could not go into the court of the priests if you were a woman or, for that matter, if you were not a priest. And you certainly couldn't go into the Holy of Holies unless you were the high priest, right? So there are boundaries, And in the ancient world, there were all sorts of customs and prohibitions and regulations and precepts and laws regarding who could go where, when, and how. So what we're talking about here is what we call in biblical theology, clean and unclean. But for our purposes, what we would say is that at these various gates and doors in the temples, including the temple in Judaism, were sentinels or guards, right? That was largely the role of priests and Levites, by the way, in the temple in Jesus' day as basically temple sentinels, temple police that guarded the doors. They were, police, they were priests, but they were also kind of like the, the security force, right? And uh, they would allow people in who were allowed to go in and keep out that which was not to to, to, uh, to go out. And so the priest often played a role as gatekeeper. Now, that is what Adam was called to do back in Genesis 2. So it's a mystery how this great high priest who is sanctifying the garden, I would argue is preparing, he's just on the verge, the threshold of going out with his wife and sanctifying all the rest of creation when the unthinkable happens and that the unholy gets in. Well, the only way that could happen is if Adam is delinquent. And this is uh, very much an interpretation in ancient Judaism that Adam is the delinquent high priest that lets the unholy come into the holy place, therefore polluting it. And because of that, then we see, of course, all the curses that come in Genesis 3. And aside from the serpents being cursed, we have Adam Mead being cast out. So the great irony here, right, is the one who is supposed to be the holy gatekeeper, in turn, along with his wife, is cast out of the garden, right, in a strange reversal. Um, And so we talked a little bit about the idea of up from the waters of chaos, and also this idea of of gate liturgies. Let me make just a couple other quick remarks. As I've already alluded to, Adam is being described as a priestly figure along with this temple pattern all the way through Genesis 1 and 2. How do we know this? Well, there's a couple clues that suggest that that Adam is a priest. I'd like to be a little pedantic and say, what's a temple without a priest? But that's not really evidence. Okay, here's a couple pieces of evidence that I think you can chew on first. Is creation unfolds according to the hexameron, or what we call the six days of creation, right, in Genesis 1. And this form, from a Catholic perspective, this literary form is best understood as figural or symbolic and not literalistic, right? J.R.R. Tolkien would call this kind of mythopoetic understanding of Genesis. The Catechism in paragraph itself says we should understand it as a a very symbolic, certainly true, it's certainly inspired, it's certainly filled with truth about how God created the world, but it's not literalistic, right? So we can dispense with any kind of fundamentalist hand-wringing about the world being 13 trillion or whatever it is years old. That's not the point of Genesis 1 or 2, right? The point of Genesis 1 and 2 is not how the world was created in six literal days, but in fact that God created the world and we can go further and that God created the world for man's worship of God and for creation's worship of God. And the clue to that is the Sabbath. As I was saying, the world was created in six days and on the seventh God rests, but it's not God taking a nap or kicking back and having a cold one, right? That's craziness, right? In the symbolic language of Genesis, what we're talking about is something much, much more mythical, much more profound. It's the idea that on the seventh day, the master artist steps back from his creation and says, behold, it is very good, right? And then he invites humanity into that perfection, into his perfection that is being sacramentalized in the created order. So through creation and through human relationships, man is able to enter into the Sabbath worship of God. And so the one clue that I would add Adam as a priestly figure is in fact the Sabbath itself, that everything is ordered to worship, uh, Ratzinger talks a lot about this. If you've read his book or Nova's book called In the Beginning, which are five homilies on Genesis, he talks about how all of creation is ordered towards the Sabbath. Let's look at one other verse quickly, and that's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis 2.15 is a very important text in our overall understanding here because it talks about Adam's priestly identity. Uh, in Genesis 2:15, we read: The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till and to keep it. Now, what's interesting here is the phrase to till and to keep it. I use, as you probably know, Logos Bible software, and I want to show you something really interesting about this verse. Here's our verse right here, to till and to keep it. It sounds like he's a horticulturalist, Adam the farmer, right? But that's not the case at all. If we actually do a little word study, this is really quickly, I'm going to do a word study with you. And show you that here is the word that's used for to till, right? There it is, Avad in Hebrew. Say that with me, A-V-A-D, Avad. Now, the all the occurrences in the Old Testament are listed here and their various connotations. What's striking is that the phrase to till is a very, very minor one down here, only a few occurrences. But mostly the word means to serve as in to worship. 289 occurrences, that's 289 in the scriptures, right? Uh, Seven pertain to working the ground. One pertains to plowing. Almost all the rest portray to liturgical work. Not only that, the other word that's translated to keep is also a little bit, unfortunately, misleading. It has to do also with serving in the temple. It's a word that really is better... Uh, Translated protect, but if you understand keeping as like keeping the gates or keeping holy, then it's fine, right? Finally, what's interesting is when the two words avad and shamar, again, avad and shamar, shamar, avad and shamar, when they occur within 15 words of one another, they always, always refer to liturgical duties of priests. And so what we're left with then in Genesis is an unmistakable image as Adam, as God's high priest that tends to this temple of Eden. So let's get back now and talk about the the temple implications of all this. So I think, what does all this mean for us? Well, I think it means a couple of things. One, we ought not to take the Old Testament for granted. We read it, we love it, but there's still more that we need to uncover and discover. And Catholic biblical theology is a is a commitment. It's a commitment to study and to prayer and to work together. But the burden shouldn't overwhelm us, right? That's why the church has uh, community. It's why we have liturgy. It's why we have preachers. It's why we have teachers. It's why we have things like the Institute and any other things. And so your goal is to just keep learning. So if you're sort of going, wow, this is cool. It's, I'm also overwhelmed. Uh, it's okay. That, that's, that's not a bad place to be. Now, theologically, what does this mean for us? Well, I think it may mean for some of us. Maybe, maybe tonight some of you um, have learned some really relatively new things. For others, maybe some of these things have been reviewed or gone a little deeper into concepts you've kind of heard about. But wherever you're at, I think what I would suggest is this demands re-examining the story of sacred scripture. Because one of the things I talk about in my book, and this is not in my remarks, but I do want to add this in here, is one of the reasons I wrote this book is I've talked to so many people who were really just baffled about what the temple has to do with the story of Jesus and for us as Catholics and Christians. And given the fact that the Old Testament is already enough of a mystery to most Christians, it's a book that I really felt like I had to write. But there's another reason. I don't want to go into too much detail about this, but as I discovered in the 19th and 20th century, a lot of biblical interpretation really um, minimized the role of the temple and the role of priesthood that goes, as you've seen, right along with the temple for a number of reasons. I would suggest largely it's not just a blind spot, but there, there was a kind of a program among some biblical critics to diminish the role of Jesus's priestly identity to diminish or obscure uh, the role of the temple in the Old Testament. I won't go into more of it than that. You can read about it in the House of the Lord, but I take a a test case of Julius Wellhausen, and he's a very famous Old Testament scholar, but what he really did in uh, his own work on the Old Testament was um, to kind of almost hide the temple, he might say. They say, it's so obvious, right? I'm like, Dr. Smith, you're making it seem so obvious. Well, it's not I that discovered it. You can go back and read St. Augustine and you can read St. Athanasius. In fact, I got this great quote. Let me share with you right now from St. Athanasius before I forget this one. St. Athanasius on the incarnation. Look what he says. Being the word of the Father, he alone was both able to recreate the universe. He's talking about Jesus, Right. And was worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to intercede for all before the Father. For this purpose, Athanasius says, then the incorporeal and incorruptible and immaterial Word of God comes into our realm, although He was not formerly distant. Having mercy upon our race and having pity upon our weakness and condescending to our corruption, He takes for himself a body and not that foreign to our own. For he did not merely wish only to be in a body, nor did he wish to merely to appear. For if he had wished only to appear, he could have made him his divine manifestation through some other better means. Now here he goes. Although being himself powerful and the creator of the universe, he prepared for himself in the Virgin, the body as a temple and made it his own as an instrument, making himself known and dwelling in it. The word of God, by offering the temple of his own body as a substitute for all, fulfilled in death that which was required. The incorruptible Son of God consequently clothed all with incorruptibility in the promise of the resurrection. And he concludes by saying, and now the very corruption of death no longer holds ground against human beings because of the... dwelling word in them through the one body. But isn't that a remarkable phrase, right? That Jesus Christ prepared for himself in the Virgin Mary, the body, his body as a temple. And that's just one of many, many, many quotes that we see in the church fathers and then before them in the Jewish interpreters of the old Testament. And so what, again, my point is that we are have been suffering in many ways over the last two centuries of biblical skepticism, this deeper biblical understanding of the story of salvation history and the identity of Jesus as the high priest, as our true eternal high priest, and also how he's recapitulating this priestly identity of Adam, who was the original high priest of God's temple of Eden. That's why all of this matters, right? There's a master arc. There's a master story here. And once we understand how the story moves from the Old Testament into the New, and we're, we're only just getting to the New Testament now, then things really get exciting and take on a remarkably new light as we begin to contemplate the face of our Lord in light of these temple realities. Okay, so that's what I want to do. I want to turn to the, um, to the New Testament. Now, look at a few texts to try to get at that question, how did Jesus perceive of himself in light of the temple? But before we do, I want to just remind you of the one uh, point I made near the very end of part one, and that is this idea, again, of Adam the high priest's call to be fruitful and multiply and to fill and subdue the earth as a major idea. This is a really huge idea for tonight, so I want you to hang on to this, because it's about taking the holiness of the holy place and not hoarding it, right? God is generous. So he wants to create this priestly humanity, right, in order to sanctify all of creation. That was the original plan, right, back in Genesis. Even though it was thwarted by Adam and Eve's own culpability, as well as by the serpent, uh, it didn't stop. So even as Adam and Eve are the ones who are ironically cast out of the holy place of the temple, The temple story continues, as well as that command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Putting it another way, Adam and Eve were called to be, they were called to be temple builders. And by that I mean, taking the holiness that they themselves embodied, given it by God, right? Being near to God in that holy place of Eden. And then by being fruitful and multiply, populating the earth and sanctifying it, not just through their offspring, but through holy deeds and through holy holy actions, through all their creative activities of life, right? That they would bring and sanctify the rest of the, of the world. That light would overcome darkness so that Nahash and all the waters of chaos outside or below the mountain of Eden would be overcome by good, right? It's kind of like that line in John's Gospel: "The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome." It right. Well, the light of Adam and Eve, the light of this high priestly figure, ideally would radiate holiness out further and further. So, let me show you a few scriptures where, believe it or not, we see this phrase "be fruitful and multiply" again and again in Scripture. Take a look at my uh, my screen here, and let me bring up for you a couple of verses. Here's the beginning one. Open your own Bibles, though, as, as we do this, right? Here's the first one. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, here it is, and fill the earth and subdue it. Right Now, my, my sort of temple interpretation here is be fruitful and multiply and continue to build God's temple holiness throughout the earth. Okay, well, beyond Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 being given this command, watch this in Genesis 9. Right? God blessed Noah and his sons. In Genesis 1, right, which is our kind of recreation scene. God bless Noah and his sons. There's a sense in which Adam is the first priest, and Noah is a new Adam, right, called to be a new Adam and a new priestly figure in Adam's own image and, of course, in God's image. But he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. There it is again. Um, we could look at, in regard to Adam uh, and to Abraham, turn with me to Genesis 17. We looked at a passage earlier in, in Genesis 17, right? Uh, where we learned the phrase El Shaddai means the God of the mountain. But take a look at what's next. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, it's not exact, but it's very, very similar to that original command. And then you see an echo of the other part of it here in Genesis 17, 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Kings will come forth from you, right? So the idea is not just about and I'm being, I'm being a bit funny here, but making babies, oh, that's part of it, right? According to temple theology, it's about radiating holiness, right? Through the gift of fertility, but also by sanctifying ourselves and allowing God to sanctify us and then living our lives. That's what the call was originally for Adam and Eve. And though that was thwarted, and they were the ones who were cast out of the temple, God's temple building Commission never ended. We saw it continue just a moment ago with Noah. I gave you another quote with Abraham. Um, Let's look at another one. This one comes uh, from the story of Jacob. Let me bring it up for us here. Um, You should be turning your own Bibles now to Genesis 28.3, if you would. And let's take a look at this one. God Almighty, right? Now, isn't this interesting? El Shaddai, God, the God of the mountain, bless you. And make you fruitful and multiply, so that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may take possession of your sojourners, which God gave to Abraham. Okay? Amazing. The God of the mountain recapitulates these original commands to Adam and Eve. And we could go on and on and on from those. The point is this, that what God began in terms of this temple paradigm with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2, was not thwarted by the sea serpent, by the Nahash of Genesis 3 verse 1. That is by Satan, right? But light will overcome darkness provided we cooperate with God. So about all of this, I say that Adam and Eve were given this, the first great commission. The first great commission, right, is a type of Jesus Christ's True Great Commission, I'm talking about in Matthew 28, right, where he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Ooh, now that we've done a little temple theology, hopefully bells are going off, and as you hear that, you're going, oh, wait a minute, right? That sounds kind of similar. It's like Jesus is taking up that original mantle, right, that was given to Adam to be fruitful, to call to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it, right? So that original first commission given to the first Adam is then recapitulated in the new Adam, in Jesus Christ. Dr. Smith, are you saying there's a connection between this temple theology that's so fascinating, right, in Genesis 1 and 2 and the story of Jesus? I am indeed. But I would go even a step further and say it's not like we go from Adam and Eve to Jesus. It's that there is this continuity. And that's why I wrote this book, to show you all the ways in which I believe that this temple archetype given to us in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 persists and it moves all the way through the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses and the Israelites, Joshua, the judges, certainly the story of David and his son Solomon, the building of the temple, and then on through the prophets into the latter books of the Old Testament, including the Psalms and the wisdom literature, preparing us to receive the New Testament and Jesus in this very light. And so we come now to uh, really to part two and to talk a little bit about Jesus's relationship with the temple and to answer some other questions about this. I certainly believe in, in all sincerity and in all confidence that Jesus fully understood himself in light of this mystery of the glory of God being revealed in the temple. There are so many clues I can barely scratch the surface. Let me just mention some, and then we'll look at a few in detail. But let me just kind of, you know, tip the bucket over and let you just pour this out on you to, for your um, for your listening pleasure, right? We have Saint John saying in John chapter one in his prologue, "The Word became flesh and templed or tabernacled among us." John one fourteen. We have the phrase I opened up our. Our webinar tonight with, right, where Jesus says something greater than the temple is here in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, temple theology is evident throughout the life of Jesus, from the annunciation, right, uh, to the visitation. If we had time I would show you how there are connections between the Ark of the Covenant in First Samuel chapter 6 and Luke chapter 1 with Mary at visiting Elizabeth. There's a profound connection between the Ark of the Covenant and the Blessed Virgin Mary, right? Mary is three months in the home of Elizabeth. The Ark of the Covenant was three months in the same region in the house of Obed-Edom. They're both destined towards Jerusalem. The point, I think, is Luke is trying to tell us that the Ark of the Covenant has been overshadowed. It's been. It's simply a prefigurement of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is bearing in her womb the new Ark of the Covenant, which is Jesus Christ. We see it in Jesus' presentation in the temple, right? When Simeon says, now I can depart in peace as he's cradling the Christ child in his arms, in the temple. We see it in the finding in the temple where Jesus says to Mary, don't you know that I must be in my father's house? Uh, What's very, very interesting about that phrase in Luke chapter 2 is, of course, in the New Testament, very, very careful to describe uh, Joseph, right, as the the stepfather of Jesus, right? Meaning the true father is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Mary is conceived, uh, Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. So they avoid in every way in the genealogies, you know, the supposed father of Jesus, right, Joseph. But in Luke chapter 2, Mary goes out of her way to say to him, your father and I have been looking for you. But I think that's to set up the pronouncement of Jesus where he says at the end of that scene in the, present, in the finding of the temple, do you not know that I must be about my, my father's business or in my father's house? Emphasizing his connection to his heavenly father, the father of the temple in this, in this temple scene. We have John the Baptist. Ooh, this is interesting. Think about it. We all know the story of John the Baptist, right? Let me ask you a question. Where does John do his ministry? It's out beyond the Jordan, right? It's in the wilderness. And what does John talk about? Open your Bibles with me to Mark 1. This is going to blow you away. It should. If it doesn't, it should, right? And Mark chapter 1, verse 4, right? The Beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, we get the uh, prophecy from Isaiah. Then watch this. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. Watch this for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we hear that and we think of Jesus and we think of, okay, the cross, and that's all well and good, right? We think of the Messiah and, okay, good. But think about it in terms of ancient Judaism where and how does forgiveness take place? in the economy of the Old Testament. Think about that. Where? Where does forgiveness of sins take place? See, the problem is we read the scriptures too much as 21st century Catholics and not enough as 1st century Jews. Because a 1st century Jew would immediately get the connection that the forgiveness of sins that John is talking about is something that takes place in the temple. If you want a given day, it's Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement the fall feast where the priest goes into the Holy of Holies, right? Sprinkles the blood, right? But then also on a daily basis, it happens as you bring sin offerings and burnt offerings to the temple daily, right? But the point is it happens in the temple and it's a sacrificial action. So why is John talking about temple forgiveness apart from the temple? Doesn't that strike you as odd? It should because it is odd. And I think part of what John's message then is that the kind of outpouring that God is preparing to do is going to be a sacrificial uh, outpouring for the forgiveness of sins, but it's going to take a place apart from the physical institution of the temple. Let me bring up another graphic for you, okay? So here's a graphic of the temple in Jesus's day. This is the structure, of course, that would describe the temple proper. So we have the holy of holies, and then out in front of it here, the holy place. And then if you can kind of imagine going back behind the building here, we have the altar and then further out still, right with the court of the the women and so on, right? So you're kind of moving into the holy of holies, right? But here's the the wall of the temple then, right? Here's the um, Solomon's porch out here. And here's Golgotha. It's not in the temple at all, right? In fact, turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is one of the passages they talk about in the house of the Lord to try to help us understand how Jesus' death is truly a sacrifice. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Verse 6. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's kind of making a metaphor here about the new life in Christ using the image of leavened and unleavened bread. Okay. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Now, watch this. For Christ, our Pascha, that's the word in Greek, it's one word, means Passover lamb, our Pascha, has been sacrificed. So, if you were a Jew standing under the cross when Jesus was crucified, and someone said, "Hey, what happened i don 't think you would say what St Paul said. You might say they crucified our Lord and an innocent man died, or you know whatever, but i don 't know that you or I or anyone standing there, even a, a follower of Jesus would be able to interpret it and intuit it the way that St. Paul does. Thanks be to God for the evangelists and for the apostles who give us the inspired truth of what really happened right because again, if you 're looking at it through the context of temple theology and you look at where um Golgotha is, right? We can see, here's the temple, here's Golgotha. <laughs> and so there's a there's 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 something new that is taking place. There's something that is powerfully new. And John the Baptist is already announcing that, right? That this this new kind of sacrifice is going to take place in God's own time, in the fullness of time, as Paul says in Galatians 4 4, but not according to the Old structure of the temple, but having said that, I want to make an important point, and that is that neither John the Baptist nor Jesus were anti temple, not at all. Right? There is a kind of a new temple movement, or I call it a counter temple movement, right? So that Jesus is announcing this new temple that is going to pour forth blood and water from his own body, right? Something greater than the temple is here, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up, John says, in John 2, he was speaking of the temple of his body. So Jesus' relationship is certainly seen in light of the original plan of God, in light of this manifestation of holiness, of glory, of temple theology. But not according to the old, but according to the new that Jesus is bringing about. And John the Baptist, as I would argue when he's out in the wilderness, and says, talking about the forgiveness of sins, is making a remark. It's not happening. In, he doesn't say it in the temple. Right? He says it out in the wilderness. Okay. Um, it's certainly very, very evident um, in when Jesus cleanses the temple. But I don't think that's really, strictly speaking, a cleansing. Talking about the action of the temple, right, in Holy Week, where Jesus goes in and turns over the tables of the money changers, right, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John's Gospel, it's found At the beginning of his ministry, it's recorded in John 2 13 to 20. In any case, I don't know that cleansing gets at the right tone. Cleansing of the temple, almost the way that's always described and preached to me, falls short. It's sort of like Jesus is seeing red, right? And here's holy indignation. And we sometimes use that as a a pretext for our own holy indignation. I don't think he was seeing red, I think he was calm as that glassy sea, right? I think it was a prophetic action. Think about it, when Jesus went into the temple and starts you know, turning over the tables, he's kind of like the prophet of the Old Testament who's announcing something very, very symbolic. Judgment, really, right? But the judgment that he's announcing is that temple sacrifices are going to stop, not just for three or four hours the day he did it, but forever. And in fact, forty years later, after his death, that is indeed what happened. So I think it's a prophetic, sort of a prophetic and symbolic action that is symbolizing something greater than this temple sacrifices is going to come. Right. So much more we have in Saint Peter's epistle, uh, uh, which is in First Peter chapter two. Uh, Saint Peter calls us to be living sacrifices. That's again born right out of the temple. Of course, Paul on a number of occasions tells the church that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's interesting because the, the Gospels basically take the idea that Jesus is the temple. Paul says, mm, Yeah, that's right, but let me build on that, no pun intended. And what he says is, Well, Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple, and we are all bricks in, in that kind of uh, larger temple design. So it's kind of, again, taking this language and motif of the temple and applying it further and further still. Of course, in the book of Revelation, we see the new heavens and new earth and the new temple coming out of Jerusalem. There is no light because the Lord himself is the light. He is the temple. I want to look with you at a passage here, if I can, from Matthew 16. This will be a very famous and familiar passage to you, but I think it will also help to really wrap up our look at at temple theology. While we're turning there, let me just bring in a little uh, excursus, a quick 45-second excursus about temple and synagogue. So what's the relationship between the temple and the synagogue? Well, synagogues were not places of sacrifice, right? The synagogue movement was always seen in connection to the temple. There were sort of like little temples without altars, right? So there's no sacrifice there. Therefore, there didn't need to be priests. There didn't need to be rabbis, right? So there was reading of scripture, prayers. So like the temple, I mean, the synagogue in Capernaum, that's where Jesus taught, It's where he cast out demons. It's where he gave the bread of life discourse. And there were synagogues all over the Mediterranean world in what we call the Jewish diaspora, right? Beginning all the way back in, pardon me, around 500 um, BC when the Jews were taken to Babylon is where we believe the synagogue movement happened. But every synagogue, in a sense, was always seen in relationship and not competition to the temple, just to make that clarifying point. Okay, you All at Matthew chapter 16 this is pretty cool. I'm going to be at uh, Caesarea Philippi in just a few weeks, and I'll be praying for the Institute and for all of you there, but let me read it for us. Matthew sixteen thirteen, 13, and we'll do some questions. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind in earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose in earth will be loosed on heaven, in heaven. Okay, so we all know the passage. We all know this is where Jesus makes the the pronouncement that Jesus is the rock. But let me show you a little image. So this is an artist's depiction of Caesarea Philippi in the time of Jesus. What we have here is a Roman temple to the god Pan, P-A-N. And up at the very top, you can barely see it, but there's the kind of like, well, horizon line, if you will. But this is above this large uh, rock face or cliff, about 200 feet high and at least that wide. And it's very, very likely that Jesus brought the disciples to this spot specifically to question them about his identity. Now, notice the kind of temple structures that we have here. This actually, by the way, still remains today. This little kind of place in the wall, that's actually in the rock wall, where little votives were placed. And in this cave right here, still has running water uh, going down into it 2,000 years later. What I'm told is that the the Romans would take um, a goat and throw it off in order to sacrifice. And if there was blood, then it was accepted. And if not, they'd throw off another goat until they could see the blood in the water or some kind of horrendous thing like that. But I think here's why I bring it up in terms of temple theology. This was a temple. And in a sense, it was like Jesus bringing them to all of the Roman Religiosity of his day in Rome, except it's in northern Israel, it's about as close as you could take them. I'm convinced that he took them there for this reason to show them this temple because what he says to Peter, right, uh, is very, very interesting when he says, You are Petros, you are Peter, right, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, two things about this as it relates to temple theology first is the term church in Greek is ekklesia. I'm sure you all know that, right? But did you know that ekklesia could also mean assembly? In other words, I think that Jesus may be pointing back to that temple and say, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my ekklesia. Not on such an ekklesia or an assembly as we have here. And so he, what he's contrasting here is the temples of this world with the temple of God. The temple of God is his own body and the church that Paul says is going to be connected to that cornerstone. So what we have is a contrast between the kingdom and temple of this world and the kingdom and temple of God. And I think this is a a pretty powerful uh, way to consider and contemplate that passage that maybe some of us haven't done before. Finally, before we take questions, I just I don't have time to really talk about it here, but I spent a lot of time going through temple theology in the passion narrative. This was very exciting, and there's an entire chapter in the book that strictly looks, I mean, five chapters on the Gospels, five, but one of those five chapters is um, pertaining just to the passion narrative, so I go through very, very carefully the arrest, the trial, uh, the crucifixion, the blood in the water, uh, the institution of the Eucharist, I talk about the miracles and the exorcisms. I don't have time to do that here. But I think Jesus casting out demons, for example, in the Gerasene Demoniac, is a, is, can be seen in the in light of temple theology. And so I would kind of wrap this up by, by saying that I think tonight, hopefully what we've seen is just a little bit of a taste of good old-fashioned biblical theology, right, of dusting off our Bibles, setting aside Cultural understandings of Eden is this kind of two-dimensional farmland, right? And coming back to the biblical text and letting those texts speak to us. And I think what they begin to show us, if we're really listening, is that God has indeed defined and designed all of creation for worship. And that in the Old Testament, this takes many forms throughout the history of Israel That we call the temple. But all of those, from Genesis 1 and 2, all the way through from Mount Sinai up to the Temple of Solomon, all the way up to the New Testament and the Temple of Herod, all prefigure Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, the eternal Logos, who is the temple incarnate. Indeed, yes, something greater than the temple is here. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, I think we've got about uh, 10 or 15 minutes. Of, I'm happy to, to pause here and see what questions or comments may uh, you may have from, from this evening's reflection.
1: We've got a couple of questions queued up already in the uh, Q&A box, so I'll start with some of those. Okay, so uh, Nicholas asks a question, is there merit to the observation that the way of the cross moves from the east to the west. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on the temple and Jesus in 2002. Your book would have been very useful at the time.
2: Yeah, so I think, I mean, thank you so much, Nicholas. And I, I think, I'm certainly, we can talk more about it in depth. I'd like to hear about your project perhaps. But what I would say to the group and to your question to the group is there is something in Father Hezekiah's. Tipped this off to this very, very early on about praying to the east, right? And so, for example, in the in the temple, you you enter in through the east. There's a sense in which we today uh, you know look at our design of most churches and their position towards the east as taking our, our cues from, as Father Hezekiah said, the rising of the sun. But what's interesting in the book. I found a number of, um, especially uh, uh, Eastern fathers, so some of the Greek writers, that talk about the location of Eden. So there's sort of a sense in trying to both look to that rising of the sun as to the the, the new creation, but also looking back to Eden, to our own origins, right, in this kind of original temple setting. And so some of you uh, that have the book may want to check out those sections, especially in in the section in the New Testament.
1: There's a question from, I think this is just like nicknamed turnstile, he says in Genesis 22 verse 4 Abraham says we will worship and come back to you before he goes off to offer up Isaac. Does this show sacrifices bound up with worship in some way?
2: Well, I certainly think the whole scene is bound up in both sacrifice and worship, right? Without going into the details of the whole scene, uh, what we have here really is a, a horror scene, right? From the vantage point of us, we look and say, why is this man about to sacrifice his son? And I think knowing something about the literary context of Genesis helps. One thing is that the whole story of Genesis is kind of being originally narrated in light of a very dark and pagan world. And when the children of Israel would listen to that famous story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, you can bet every, everyone held their breath when the, you know, when the knife goes up, right? But then what happens, the angel of the Lord intervenes and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not harm a hair on the boy's head. It's like the Bible's way of saying, look, nothing bad was ever gonna happen here, it was a test. Um, but the test, I think could be you could put it this way, everything that God promised was going to happen through Abraham, was gonna be given through the offspring, everything. It was all attached to the son, right? To Isaac, the gift of son. Remember, he's childless. So in a way, it's kind of like God saying, okay, here's this child of promise. Now, can I have him back? Can I have him back? And, and that's, that's the challenge that Abraham has. It's, it's sort of like, do I love who God is more than I love the promises that he's made to me of things he's going to do for me? And that's the choice that we also have to make, right? is do we love God, or is there a sense in which our love of him is bound up in the things that he's going to do for us? And I think that's what, for me at least, uh, continually fascinates me about that scene. One other thing I would say before we move on to another question is in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, we are told that the place of the binding of Isaac is Mount Moriah, and that Mount Moriah is in fact the place where David purchased the threshing floor, in other words, the, the property for the temple. So, where the place where Isaac is being sacrificed in Genesis 22, in fact, prefigures to the exact locale the place where the altar is going to be later built in the time of David, which is pretty astounding.
1: Uh, Anonymous attendee, and then Teresa, I'll get you right afterwards. Anonymous attendee asks, I understand that the gatekeepers were priests, but how was their work gate liturgies?
2: Yeah. So I didn't really have as much time to to specify or go into, into gate liturgies. One of the difficulties here, to be honest with you, is we don't really have enough data about what the liturgies were really like in the Old Testament period. We have some ideas from the book of Leviticus, but really what we have in Leviticus are more instructions than liturgies, right? So it's a real mystery for us what these liturgies look like. We can, we can kind of try and put two and two and two together and get six or seven, but we're not always sure. One of the things that helps me when I read Leviticus is to try to do so with the Psalms nearby, because the Psalms are really the songbook of the temple. So if you take the Psalms and, and turn up the volume on the Psalms, you might say, and then read Leviticus, what you have is then precept. And also liturgical song together, and it can kind of help to create that liturgical smoke. But to answer your question, I don't, I don't really know that we can say we have any. I don't have any evidence uh, really to speak of of like what they pronounced or what they said. But I do bring in some texts from the non biblical world that uh, of of texts where there were these so called gate liturgies or or pronouncements. And this is not a perfect example, but I'm also a Tolkien fan, and I think of even in Tolkien's literature, you see, for example, the way there's that whole scene that plays out at the Mountain of Moria, where they have to kind of figure out before they can enter in, or later uh, with Gandalf and the Balrog, "You shall not pass" is kind of a gate liturgy, right? So, in some way or another, I think we can we can infer that the role of priests as well as Levitical men was to certainly guard and to keep those areas of the temple. There's a lot of rabbinic literature that talks about that this did, in fact, take place. What we don't have are the kind of like liturgical texts like Eucharistic prayer number two. We don't have those, but we can kind of at least begin to imagine what some of these uh, thresholds represented. Again, the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles, there was a sign forbidding them on pain of death. Now, I don't know if that ever actually took place if some Gentile kid, you know, wanders away from his father's marketplace tan. Gee, what's inside there and is killed, but it was more about the statement of the uh, significance and profundity of these various barriers of one moving closer and closer or further and further away from God. Teresa? Yeah,
0: um, thank you, Doctor. This has just been fabulous. Oh, good. The reading this morning, if I have my mornings right, was from Zechariah, St. Luke, about he goes in and the angel comes. And I just wondered where he was in, in the temple.
2: Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I was going to mention this earlier. So, first of all, John the Baptist's father is a priestly figure. That means that John the Baptist by birth was a Levite, right? Uh, and, of course, Zechariah the priest was. Otherwise, he couldn't, he couldn't have functioned in that duty. By the way, in the book I talk about the differences between the New Covenant priesthood and the Old Covenant priesthood. One different, big difference is it was not a priesthood of vocation. If you were a Levite, you were going to be a a man, you were going to be a priest, right? I mean, there was a physical inspection and all this kind of stuff. But for the most part, if you were a Levite, you were going to be a priest. And if you descended from Aaron, then you were also eligible to be a high priest. So it doesn't appear that uh, Zechariah descended from, from Aaron, or he would have been eligible to be a high priest. Of course, he wasn't. But where he was, and I'm going to bring up really quickly this graphic here if I can. I'll show you right where he was. So here's the temple proper itself, right? The building of the temple, right? Here's the holy place, all of this, right? And then here's the holy of holies, or the most holy place. So he's right here at what's called the the golden incense altar. This is as close as you can possibly get to the holy of holies. And in a sense, and I talk about this in the book, there's a sense in which he's really mediating between God and all of Israel in that place. And the very fact that he would have been at that altar was like winning the lottery, right? Because they chose their um, places by lot. And his lot comes up to be at the golden altar. This is not what most priests are doing. They're kind of polishing the doorknobs here or they're way over there. It's a huge temple. So the very fact that he's in like the prime position tells us something. And then, of course, the angel that addresses him is Gabriel. And this is the angel that in the Old Testament had spoken to daniel and talked about the coming of the messiah so it seems like once again luke is making one of these luke is so into this this old testament typology always trying to show us oh, how how is pertaining oh. to what happened back in the time of the old testament So a great question
1: got a question in the uh chat box here it says how much if any influence did egyptian temple cosmology have on israelite temple cosmology and the construction of the tabernacle, its sections, and its furnishings?
2: This is an open question. Um, I don't, you know, the book that I wrote is really, doesn't get into the comparative questions as much. I do raise it as much as some of these themes, like gate liturgies and such. I don't really know is the honest question. I certainly would say, though, this, that the book of Genesis seems to be written in a time when there are all these kind of competing pagan religions around it, right? So, for example, what I mentioned earlier about the sacrifice, quote-unquote, of Isaac. There is no sacrifice, right? But I think it's kind of the Bible thumbing its nose at these pagan nations and saying, well, that's what you guys would do, but our God doesn't demand that of his man Abraham or in the creation of the six days. You've got similar creation stories, as we know, in the ancient world. But in those stories, you have many gods versus the one God. You have creation being brought about by violence versus versus through peace. And so what I would say is that I think that the Bible seems very aware of the culture in which it's written, and is often thumbing its nose at these pagan cultures by way of announcing who the true God of Israel is. And so I wouldn't be surprised that there is some sort of some sort of a back and forth even even in the design. Interestingly, when I go to the Holy Land, I'll be telling my seminarians that the Dome of the Rock, uh, which is the Muslim mosque, was in fact an imitation of the Holy Sepulchre. And from my understanding, they they consulted a Christian architect, or at least someone who was an Islamic who had understanding of Christian architecture, and then modeled the dome, except the dome of the Holy Sepulchre is kind of like a blue Sapphire, and the Dome of the Rock is beautiful, is gold. So there's a sense of kind of awareness of the other always sort of happening there.
1: I've got a great question um, here in the Q&A box. It says, where does the priest of Melchizedek fit in all this?
2: Oh, gosh, that's something you're going to have to read the book for. But briefly, (laughs) Melek Sadiq are two words in Hebrew. Melech means king, Sadiq means righteous. So his name means righteous king. You can read his story in Genesis 14 for the full story. Get the book. But what he basically does is he prefigures this primordial priesthood of Jesus Christ. It kind of runs from Melchizedek through David and then on into Jesus. And there's a whole chapter where I talk about uh, Jesus as the eternal high priest in Hebrews where it really kind of uh, finishes up. I wanted to add one quick thing. I just want to make this quick point if I can. And that is, I was talking a lot about God's presence in the temple. One of the things that distinguished the Israelites from the other nations is that they did not consider Yahweh a local deity, right? That's what you would have in all the temple the temple of Artemis, temple of Athena. You go in there and there's the temple where that, that God is. The God of Israel is the God of heaven. So it's a mystery and a paradox that he's at once the God of heaven and he's also the God of in the temple. So he's the God of transcendence and he's the God of eminence. In other words, he's the God of, uh, the God of heaven and the God who is near us, right? And that brings us back to that idea of Jesus, the Emmanuel of God. Okay. This is
1: from, uh, Patricia. She asks, um, do you believe that the temple will be rebuilt by the Jews with animal sacrifices? Evangelicals uh, seem to be very keen to see this happen.
2: Well, this is a perfect question to end on for various reasons. Couldn't ask for a better one, Patricia, so thank you. No, I do not. I I think that there are a a small minority of evangelicals and that there is a small group of various Jews that are longing to see the so-called third temple. Here's the point. Jesus is the new temple of God, right? So to to be awaiting the construction of a new temple and repeating... uh, the, the sacrifices would fly against the book of Hebrews and really all the story of scripture. So I don't say that as in any derogatory way, but just to clarify that Jesus himself is the new temple, right? The sacraments of water and blood signify the baptism and Eucharist pouring out of his life through the church. And so to go back to that system of the old covenant would seem to kind of be an undoing of the new. But having said that, we need to pray I think for, uh, fundamentalist Christians for some, and not all evangelicals, by the way, most evangelicals I don't think believe, but there are a, a kind of a splinter group, uh, some so-called, I hope I'm not offending it, but some, some Messianic Jews kind of will talk along similar lines of this building of the temple and the evangelical point seems to be that if we can kind of bring about the temple, this will, will, will force the, the coming, the second coming. And God doesn't need to force the second coming. It's already on his agenda. And so we can, we can rest in peace that no matter what happens in the Holy Land, God's got it in control. And Jesus, the temple, is already among us in our tabernacles at every parish. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. This is oh. absolutely wonderful talk. Thank you so much.
2: If interested in the book, you can get it at Amazon. It's called The House of the Lord. You don't want to buy the book. You can participate in my community at facebook.com slash The Outer Court. We've got a weekly podcast and a lot of other cool stuff. Andy, thank you so much for letting me be a guest once again here tonight. It's always a privilege.
1: It's always a joy for us too, Dr. Smith. God bless you all. You. Take care.
2: Shalom.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.